Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It's season two of Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Greg Koch. We're having a lot of fun. Got a bunch of great guests lined up. We're talking about guitars. Sometimes we talk about food. Sometimes we talk about aliens. It doesn't matter. We're just having a good old time. We're chewing the gristle for pity's sake. You know, and gristle is where fat meets flavor. Chewing the Gristle this week, one of the modern masters of rock guitar from the powerful band Animals as Leaders, Tosin Abasi. Whether on a six, seven, or eight string guitar, he does some truly mind-bending stuff and what a heck of a nice guy. Stay tuned, great stories from Tosin Abasi. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Greg Koch here. Chewing the Gristle podcast commences with the mighty Tosin Abasi, a modern guitar master. Doggone it, Tosin. You do th- you've kicked the ball down the field as far as guitar potentatedom. And potentatedom is not really a word, but I think it is now. How the heck are you, my friend? What's going on out there? <laughs> I'm good, Greg. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. You know, it was kind of a kind of a strange day. I opened up um, my inner Google, and I saw this article, which is interesting. And it says Mateo Sasato shuts down Instagram account and announces break from music, announcing that Instagram helped musicians get better at business at making flawless performance videos. After uncountable takes, I got lost inside boxes of fifteen to sixty second videos, and I just think that's so wild. Maybe we just talk about that for a second because. It's one of those weird things where I would have never known who Mateus was. And he says that over and over again in the article. Like, look, Instagram's been great to me. People have seen me play. I mean, I think that his little 60-second opuses are just beautiful and inspiring and, and glorious. Yeah. And uh, But there is that weird thing of, you know, how often do you contribute? You know, what do you – it's a weird mind thing. I just kind of do whatever. I don't really have any plan behind what I do. It's just kind of like, hey, I think I'll do this today. I'm wearing my jammy pants. Let the good times roll. But how, how do you feel about the whole social media thing, and how does that play into what you do? Um, yeah, it's a big question. And I think as musicians, social media is different for all of us. Like, yeah. I, I have a similar approach to what you were describing, where the Instagram thing is kind of like a side note to what I'm doing otherwise. And it's either what I'm practicing or new gear or right. – you know, there's a new lick or whatever. It's like this sort of bite-sized way of engaging, you know, your your fans. And I think it's really cool how, at least in its origins, it was like this stripped down sort of window, you know, into, I can see what guitar you feel like playing that day and whatever right. thing you're, you know, I like that. But I do think there's a double-edged sword to where it can become really central and you start looking at analytics and performance and, I think it can start to do a thing if you're focused on it and it can feel kind of strange. Right. Yeah. Totally. I mean, there, there's definitely, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, yeah, I don't know. I just think like if you're a songwriter, you can't put a whole song on there. Or if you're a performer, if the stage is really your context, now we can't go on stages. It seems like everything's getting shoved into this little, this little 60 second box. And I could see that getting a little weird, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It, it is interesting. There, there have been individuals that have figured out ways um, to do, 
you know, to decipher the analytics on all these different formats and to optimize this, that, and the next thing and, and make it into a, into a, a revenue stream of its own creation and have their, have their own celebrity. And, and I, you know, Hey, if that works for them, let the good times roll. But, um, I just find having a hard time with, I mean, yeah, kind of like, you know, what you were talking about. If I feel like playing something and you're kind of the same way, Hey, check this out. I've learned this new thing today. It's all about that to me. It's not about, and if I post something and if I have a minute to, uh, to interact with somebody, I do so, but it seems like there's this whole other echelon of stuff where that's like your entire day is mm-hmm. interacting with people on the internet. And it's just, whoa, that's, that's a time consumer. Yeah. It's, I, like I said, I think there's varying degrees to which people engage social media. Like I don't look at analytics. I'll go weeks without posting. Like right. it is what it is, and it's pretty casual. I don't know. I feel like for Mateus, like he had a pretty insane. Um, I want to say success on right. Instagram. Absolutely. Like, I mean, he is one of the you know more prominent Insta. You know, I, I almost said Instagram guitar players, and maybe that's part of the problem. Oh yeah, could be. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> he's it's, he's not an Instagram guitar player, and I think. I think we might have Instagram guitar players now. Like, sure. yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? Right. And like, so you're, you, you've been performing for a while. And I think there's this, there used to be this distinction. We used to be like, oh, that guy's like a bedroom shredder. But then, you know, there's dudes who like go on the road and, and they're kind of, and we have these like kind of categories, you know, right. But pre-internet, it was all like, are you on stage or are you not? Are you right, recording exactly. records or are you not? And it's interesting to see the validation of players who maybe have never really done a tour or really, but we can see them because of Instagram, because of this medium. And I think, I don't know. I, I could see it kind of becoming like, I'm not going to say that it doesn't feel real, but I think the connective part of playing in front of humans, Instagram, gives you a weird version of that. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like some comments and some numbers, but it's not that same thing. Right. And I don't want to speak for Mateus, but I wonder if the, the whole shutdown of all performances has put a unnecessary amount of emphasis on things like Instagram and social media for, for players. And it doesn't fulfill you in the same way that getting out in front of people did. And maybe it's just starting to feel like, I don't know, this is a little too Black Mirror or something, you know? Right, yeah, 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 yeah. It's interesting, though. It's... It's it's strange times. But at the same token, I mean, these are, as you said, you know, when you have... When it's part of a... Of what you do, but not the main thing. I guess, you know, I guess that's the same with anything. If you're not too tethered to one thing, then you have the freedom to go, oh, hey, I'm gonna... I'm gonna do this a little while over here, and then I can do this over here and not be so absolutely, you know, tethered to having to do those things. That's a whole different ball of wax. Yes. Yes. Having to do anything. Do you feel this way about playing? Like if, if you've got, like, I know when you want to play, you want to play, but what about when you like have to play? Does that like mentally make you feel like, I don't know if it's juvenile, but like (laughs) the fact that you have to do it, does that change it for you? You know what I mean? Well, you know, that's an interesting thing. You know, during the the weeks here, you know, I I, I do, I, I, I suppose I'm not contracted, but I've agreed to do four live streams a week. 
Uh, and it's usually five when I do my band live stream. Um, but I just like playing, so I never... To me, it's like I wake up in the morning, the first thing I do, other than make coffee, which is the absolute first thing I do, um, is is play. You know, I, I sit down and I, and I start playing, and I'm, I'm usually listening to something as I'm going to bed that uh, is something I want to investigate, you know, musically or, or otherwise. And uh, so I don't really... Um, I don't really look at it as have to. I guess the, the the thing that's fun is that I um I guess I don't really feel tethered to any particular uh, musical approach because I've tried to put it in this whole thing. So it's like, oh well, today I feel like doing that thing that more of a Les Paul thing, or I haven't played a Strat today. I want to do that thing, or I'm gonna play uh, a Telly, or maybe I'll do acoustic, or maybe I'll do slide today. So I think. You know, not being, you know, having to force myself to to stick to a, a, a box. You know, and in some ways, that's kind of um, not that people want to hear me talk, but <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's just one of those things where, um, you know, because I'm not tethered to a, a certain thing per se, and nor are you. I mean, you do whatever you want to do, and and there's so many different influences in what you play. Um, that it's it's just kind of fun um, to do whatever. But kind of segueing into that, I was I was on the um, I was listening to some um, a kind of a, a I just put it on mix today, and I was listening to a bunch of your different stuff as I was on the uh, I was on the elliptical, and I found myself going at increasingly bolder speeds as I was on that. I was listening to these these powerful jams, and you know I, I couldn't help but think of how the creative process works for you. I mean, is it one of these things where um, you come up with the odd measure thing and you know that it's X, Y, and Z, or you're like, no, I'm feeling this as this, and then I'll figure out the time signature later. Or as you're figuring it out and kind of documenting the original riff, do you make it conform to a particular uh, time signature to make part of a cohesive statement? I'm just curious as to how that works. Um Within your question, you also answered, you also answered a lot of it. <laughs> so like, um, a lot of it is, uh, I don't know if you ever pick up the guitar and you start playing and either it's something you've played before, or you're just like, I don't know, it's, it's something you haven't played before. Um, I kind of try to poach, um, like happy accidents out of these moments where I'm, I'm playing, but I didn't. I didn't like fully predict what I was about to do. Um, and I'll like start. So maybe I'll stumble upon a little lick or a line and I'll be like, Oh, that's, that's interesting. And I almost can hear more potential in that. And then I'll start to mold it and I'll just, I'll repeat it, but maybe I'll change a note or add a note or whatever. And that is usually the seed of like a phrase. Um, and then, you know, considering the odd meter, component to it it's it's not like i'm like oh i'm gonna work in five four or i'm gonna work in you know seven eight it's usually like um it's kind of a sensibility that has developed over time because i listen to a lot of music with odd meter right so i think i now i i um it's more likely that i will spit out a phrase that is in an odd meter than something that is in an even meter um and that's partially deliberate and partially sub subconscious because of the diet of music that I, you know, was influenced by. And, um, 
I'll even do things deliberately. Like I might drop a beat from a phrase um, just to disrupt the expectation of that, that resolution. Um, yeah. Just so like, it's, it's similar to like throwing in intervals that are slightly outside of, you know, what people would expect. Right. And it's just doing it rhythmically. Um, and yeah, I don't have a super conscious, I'm not like, Hey, I'm going to work in C minor and in five, four. I never, I never do that. Um, so there is a, a healthy amount of like, I don't know if you feel this way, but sometimes your hands are kind of playing. And I know this is kind of bad. Some guitarists consider it a bad thing to not be in front of every note you play. You know what I mean? Like you should be able to sing every phrase or, you know. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I, yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes your hands just do something. You're like, well, that was cool. Exactly. <laughs> and I love that that was cool part. Right. Because, um, I was, I was listening to a lecture from Julian Lodge. Um, yeah. Yeah. And he was the first guy I heard kind of identify this. I think he said something to the effect of like, yeah, I don't always sing what I play or want to know ahead of time. I actually like that. There's this part of maybe improvising or composing that is like one step beyond you in a weird way. Right. Where, yeah, you like didn't decide to do those four notes, but here you are doing them. Like, what? <laughs> what is that? Right. Yeah. So I love that area, and I try to exploit it because it's exciting for me to hear something that I did that, in some ways, I'm like, I didn't consciously all the way do it. But um, obviously, from there, I use whatever theory I do know about harmony and whatever I know about rhythm to start to make deliberate choices to make it sound a certain way. Right. And in so doing, I mean, is a lot of this, uh, how are you with the creative process when you present it to the band? I mean, I'm sure it's kind of multifaceted. Sometimes it's like this and sometimes like that, like that, but are you're like, Hey, let's, let's kind of mess around with this riff a little bit with the band and see what it morphs into. Or are you more like, okay, um, I want you to do this and you do this and, and that's the way it's going to be. Or is it, or as I said, or is it a, a kind of a combination of all of the above? Um, yeah, it is closer to me um, having it pretty developed. And um, it's not really a jam situation. Just because you're some of these phrases are not even a single time signature. Sometimes they're, they're multiple. Right. So to know the phrase, you got to hold in your head three different lengths of, of meter. And you're just kind of like, um, so animals as leaders has a process that isn't exactly like jam room, but it's more of like the guitar phrases will usually be the, like the centerpiece of what's going on. And we'll usually track that stuff into a click. And then, um, there's going to be some obvious rhythmic decisions to make from that point forward. Um, and we'll just kind of, we have like a little electronic drum kit. So our drummer will play on that. And just to get like skeletal rhythmic ideas. And then you're kind of in this feedback loop with the sketch of the song and, you know, the musical choices you want to make next are kind of informed by the fact that you have this sort of like skeletal version going on. You can say, look, I want this part to repeat another three times, but we should chop a meter off the third, you know, repeat. And then we should go to this part, you know, that sort of thing. I got you. So, so in giving parts to the other folk, do you, um, 
do you write it out? Do you just send them like a separate track of, hey, you play this part? Or um, or how, how does that work? Do you slow it down and say it's like this? Or how does that all work? Uh, so we'll usually all get in a room together. And our uh, the other guitar player in the band, Javier, is right. he's a he's like and, it, you know, he's mixed our last record and um, he's like proficient at recording. So, like I said, I'll usually present maybe two or three guitar ideas. We'll track that into Logic or Pro Tools. And then in real time, he may grab the guitar and write like a complimentary part to what I introduced, you know, and then we'll get some drums going. And then from there, like I said, it's almost like you get to be part listener, part composer. And you could be like, dude, yeah, let's do the same part. But this time, let's let's all hit these accents or whatever musical decision you're making. But it's kind of like a real time thing. I'm not writing anything out and I'm not. I like the the fact that um, I might have an idea for a musical phrase and maybe I have an idea for harmony or for chord voicings. But what's really cool about being in a band is um, someone else also has ideas. And and it's cool to like. So I get to contribute this little part. And it's awesome to hear the way Javier might voice a chord over the, the single note lines I'm doing or he might hear a melody over a chord progression that I wrote. I just didn't write the melody yet. And I like that sort of like collaborative, you know, songwriting approach. Cool. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, as you're, as you're describing this and I was listening to the music today and I was thinking to myself, you know, so many times, you know, I have an instrumental band, uh, bent to what I do and I also have some vocal bands and you always have people going oh if only you did vocals this would this and this would happen you're like I you know I try not to listen to what people say in general but <laughs> I'm curious for you in your in your process of of your as your vision as an artist did you did you say to yourself I'm going to do instrumental stuff and then when did you feel a sense of oh I've got an audience for this and and then you you felt like oh I know that and then you get invigorated by that process of knowing that yeah I'm doing what I want to do and I also know that when people hear it they're gonna dig it you know what I mean how, talk a little bit about how that process went um, yeah that was a good question I uh, you mentioned like you know people digging it you know I think I was one of those people digging like guitar centered instrumental rock or metal I mean. You have your usual suspects like Satch and Vi. Those are the first guys I heard like making records with the guitar as the equivalent of the the singer. And that's how I thought of it when I was, you know. And I just thought it was really novel because up until then, I had really only been exposed to whatever was on MTV or on like Top 40 radio. And especially with Vi, I heard just um, a a range of creative ideas and personality in his guitar playing. And I realized, I was like, I like this world. There there isn't really a human voice, but it's really compelling music. Um, And I think obviously being a guitar player, that's going to hide, that's going to, it's going to speak to me. So I think pretty early on, I was like wanting to make music for guitar players. Um, And I think, my sensibilities as far as what I wanted to make were informed by what I was listening to. And so it kind of was like, um, I wanted to make guitar centric instrumental music because 
I felt instrumental music was super compelling, even beyond the guitar. There's electronic music, there's classical music, there's like, and it just seemed like by removing the human voice and being locked to like a song form that complements verses and choruses and stuff, you have this playground of doing crazy guitar stuff. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I didn't have any aspirations. I didn't know that it would get big or I think there was a type of purity to the pursuit that was just like, I wanted to do the things that I was inspired by um, musically. And the fact that people liked it was like a really welcome, like, you know, happy accident. But I by no means made it easy for people to like it. I don't think. <laughs> Believe me, I understand. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's kind of interesting because I remember in, I remember at some point when I was younger, I was like, man, if only Led Zeppelin didn't have that singer. But then, of course, I, I loved Robert Plant. And, but at some point, I remember thinking this would be so much better if there wasn't some guy yelling push, push, push over the top of this savage riff. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it's interesting as a, as a listener, I mean, you, you have, especially in this day and age, you have people where, it's, you know, they'll... They're all about the lyric, you know what I mean, in, in the in the in the grand images that can be provoked by the uh, by the spoken or sung word, and that the music is almost just kind of a soundscape for the more important thing of the of what the lyric is all about. And to me, I find myself. I mean, there are there are tunes that I've listened to since a kid where I have no idea what they're saying. I just li listen to the voice as as an instrument, you know, and. And then, but there'll be other things like you listen to early Bob Dylan, and I get this. You can get or Johnny Cash to me. Like those are the guys where I can listen to them just with a with an acoustic guitar and say their 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 things, and I get transported in the same way that I do by the instrumental aspect of of what music presents to me. But it's it's just kind of an interesting thing. I mean, I I definitely think that there are people that listen to music differently, and that's okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, you just said something that I haven't consciously thought about in a while, but um, it's the like hearing the song but not hearing the lyrics because you're hearing the vocals is just another melodic like art right. of song. I think it's because we're like we're you know our our instruments are they're nonverbal, and I think we process sound primarily from that from that vantage point. And I think you're right. A lot of people are like, "What's the guy saying?" It's like the crux of the, yeah. but, um, you know, yeah, it's the thing that um, I realized, I think when I was younger, I had a girlfriend who like knew lyrics to so many songs. And I realized that there were songs I loved that I listened to a lot, but I was never really concerned what the person was saying. And inversely, I could listen to music that um, I didn't speak the language. It still had the same musical value, even if it was like a bossa nova tune in, in Portuguese. Right. I'm still hearing intervals and, and rhythm. And so, but I think for some people, like, yeah, that focal point of like what the singer is saying, and that's kind of the meat on the plate, you know? And um, yeah, I just think it's cool to make modern and instrumental music that disrupts the idea that you've got, there's got to be some person saying words for it to be compelling to you. Right. Yeah. Which is an interesting thing because I think, um, you know, from, uh, you know, when people think of commerciality, you know what I mean? They always think, well, you're doing pretty good 
for an instrumental guy. You know what I mean? There's always the, that caveat, you know, and, and because I think most of the people, especially in in um, that are the arbiters of taste, if you will, on, you know, very, you know, music critics in general uh, who are, in fact, writers. So they, they have a tendency to give more credence to the written word than just instrumentals. And uh, not that that, you know, not that that makes that big of a deal, but it just it just seems to be uh, that instrumental music. To me, I mean, I preferred listening to instrumental music. You know, mm. if I'm if I'm going on my walk and you know, and and most of the time I'm listening to instrumental music or music where I have again I have no idea what's being said. Every now and again I'll listen to, something and and something will viscerally affect me by what's being said. But that's more of the exception than the rule. But. Um, mm. You know, I'm 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 grateful for the fact. By the same token, too, is that I also think that there's a there's a certain uh, alienation that takes place when someone when you have someone sing, or if I sing, like people might like the way I sing, people might be hate the way that I sing, or the fact that my vocal ability is not up to the ability of what I've obviously spent a lot of time with on the guitar. I think vocals have a tendency to polarize much more so. Right out of the gate, than than music does. Music is pure. People listen to it, and either they can enjoy it or not. But it's like someone, you know, will start singing, and immediately it contextualizes it. You know what I mean? It's an interesting thing. Yeah, no, you're so right. I, I think, look, obviously humans are hardwired to be disproportionately responsive to other human voices, like whether it's the sound of your crying baby or your loved one. I think we have a disproportionate awareness of the human voice and the human voice is beautiful as well. So in music, I think it, it has a, a lot more gravity than say a trumpet or something like that. But one of the amazing things about creating instruments is that it's a way of channeling the human voice through a, like a, a new medium, whether it's the cello or the, and I think like what's compelling when I listen to you is the fact that like, you have learned to manipulate an instrument to a degree that is as expressive as if it's beyond what you could do with your with your voice. And I think that's a really interesting like magic trick. I think, you know, we go back to, I don't know, the birth of like Baroque classical music and all these guys are manipulating these these devices we've made. And it has elements of a human voice. There's vibrato and there's there's these things that like feel like emotive but it's someone learned to manipulate an object to emulate components of how we emote and i think that's just like i think it's really compelling um damn you said one other thing that i wanted to craft sorry slipping my mind but that's all right yeah no but yeah, I don't know. I, I guess at the end, I think there's there's room for all of it. There's a lot of people making pop music for obvious reasons. And so I felt like, well, I'm going to do stuff for people on my team who like instrumental music and like guitar. And, you know, I think there could be more of this stuff going on in this camp. So, yeah, that's where I put my energy. I can dig it. We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. 
Talk a little bit more about some of your influences and what kind of shaped your, like what initially inspired you and what were the things that kind of fueled you on your way? Um, you talked about Satriani and, and, and Vi, but who are some, some other things? Yeah. You know, I think, I think guitar players, I think there's a list of usual suspects, at least for like for shred guys and stuff like that. Um, so I think technically I fixated on like a part of my learning process involved watching Paul Gilbert or, you know, Frank and Bali and like, um, John Petrucci and Ingve Malmsteen, just literally like, sure. These guys are like Olympiads, you know, I'm like, Whoa. Um, but there's another side of, I think the musical development that wasn't guitar based at all. And it's like, I was into bands like Radiohead and, um, like Nirvana was one of my first, like, I guess, bands that I chose that I felt was were doing things that were like, kind of not super digest digestible and not very, like, pop. You know, even though they had like wide scale success, you can put on a Nirvana record and there's some dark, sort of complex emotive stuff in there. Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, and it it had a it wasn't refined. It had a poetic, like they have like almost like not punk sensibilities, but it's like, you know, the, the chords weren't always super intonated. Right. And the sure. tones were like, what amp is that? You know, right. like, <laughs> and I, I like that sort of, um, I consider it our, a, an aesthetic choice that I didn't often hear in like the sort of, you know, if we're listening to certain refined players. It's, it's like, it's a bit more tidy. So I like that there was this sort of like the equivalent of like a really messed up room, you know, like there's this kind of like kick stuff over vibe to it. Um, but then I got into metal, which I think kind of became a permanent fixture with what I do. So um, that kind of is the genre that I think started to become central to like what I was plugging my guitar stuff into, it was more like, all right, the drums are going to be pretty aggressive and the tones are going to be aggressive too. I think, I don't know if you feel this way about distortion, but it's, it's like its own, it's like wine. There's like all these types of distortion. Absolutely. Yep. And it's, it's kind of always distortion, but it's always different because each character of game is different, even though the family of distortion is, and I think metal, um, there's a really gratifying thing to very percussive, tight, like cutting types of guitar tone. Right. Um, and so a lot of my influences are metal bands, but then I'm pulling from even guys like uh, Kurt Rosenwinkel and Adam Rogers and um, Jonathan Kreisberg, all these bebop guys. Well, they're like post-bop or I don't know if you... Right, yeah, yeah. But like they started hipping me to harmony that I wasn't hearing anywhere. And it, it wasn't like straight ahead, you know. Actually, sorry, Tanya, I remember what I was going to say when you were talking about lyrics and, and, That's all right. and Go songs. Ahead. And it's because we're talking about jazz. But I remember realizing that jazz standards had lyrics. Right. And I'm like, I know all the things you are. But I don't know the lyrics to all the things you are. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. And I like prefer it as an instrumental tune than to like hearing 
the lyrics to Autumn Leaves or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And so that's that's what I wanted to say. I feel like it really encapsulates that that point. But um, these these modern jazz players are doing things with harmony and that I felt was like super super um, stimulating. So influences basically to round this up is you know usual suspects of shred guitar and some wider context like you know Radiohead or Bjork and or Nirvana and then metal and jazz because jazz has the harmony metal has the dynamic power and a lot of the technique I stole from my favorite you know electric guitar players and that's kind of it I can dig it you know when yeah. you were mentioning you know Radiohead you know I I like Radiohead too I wasn't one of the you know I I I wasn't hip to it as it was actually happening. I mean, I think OK Computer was the first one I bought, and um, and I I dug it because I like the twisted I like the twisted melodic content, you know, and the unexpected chords, mm-hmm. and um, and I do dig it immensely. And then it was interesting the other day I I started revisiting, and I don't know if you're you're hip to Richard Thompson at all. You ever listen to Richard Thompson? No. Well, Richard Thompson is a, um, he was in Fairport Convention back in the day, a kind of a, a folk rock type of a cat from England, um, but really a freaking great guitar player, great songwriter, vocalist. Um, and I, I've forgotten how much I was influenced by him, probably because the, when I listened to the records, I was still drinking. <laughs> and there are, there are swatches of time back then. I was like, oh, I totally forgot about the, that decade. But, you know, there's, there, there, are, there are periods when, this, and when I was doing the deep dive on Richard Thompson, I forgot to – it's just kind of lost to me. And all of a sudden I started re- realizing how much I was affected by that stuff. And I was thinking Radiohead had to have listened to this guy because of the way that he record his chord progressions and the way that he puts things together. But it's it's kind of this this uh, uh, Celtic influence, you know, blues influence, um, and and but he's a great guitar player. I mean, he's kind of like a a more um, dexterous Mark Knopfler. You know, you could definitely tell uh, Mark Knopfler awesome. totally listened to him. That's awesome. Uh, so, anyways, just I, I was just thinking of that. So uh, you, you'd enjoy him. What's his name? Uh, Richard Thompson. Richard Thompson. All right, I'm gonna I'll make a little note. You, and, you just said something um, that I think is cool. It's like finding a really awesome guitar player where you don't expect it. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you're like, the band could get away without a killer lead guitar player, but they happen to have one. Right. And, it's it's really cool when that happens, especially like in in, in more pop music, because you get these little Easter eggs of like you're like that was an amazing solo, that's awesome, right? <laughs> but it's like not the crux of the song most of the time. I'm just gonna I'm find gonna this. Uh, tell you about this live record. There's a Richard Thompson band live, uh, and it's called Two Letter Words. And then the 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 record I had and I remember listening to it all the time was from it was called Mirror Blue and there's a tune called The Way That It Shows and it goes into this these repeating minor chords and he jams over them and it is just hypnotic as hell. So anyways, I digress. But I, when you mentioned Radiohead, I mentioned Richard Thompson. And whenever I hear something like that, I'm always trying to connect the dots. Like, where did they get that stuff from? You know, like when I, I remember when I was such a huge Hendrix fanatic. And I was like, well, how much of this stuff did he just pull out of the ether? It, but where did he get this, that, and the next thing? And there was stuff that he definitely pulled out of the ether, but there was a lot of other stuff that I could connect the dots to. And I'm always kind of got the radar out for that. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that's super, super real. Um, 
because there's these players who are, they stand out as like kind of like you know hyper original, but it's likely that they are a combination of their favorite players and you know a lineage of music. Um, I really like that. Like when I hear you play, like I can tell that there's like a combination of some foundational things that you like. Like you go into this weird, twisted, like almost bluegrass territory sometimes, and then there's a straight ahead like raw blues thing. And um, it's partially, I feel like you have a large repertoire of songs. Like you, you remind me of one of these guys who can just be like, hey, remember this tune? And you can just play like a song, but there's a ton of them. It's just like this library of like songs. But um, it feels like you, you may be fixated on like a couple of guys who are all very distinct in their own right. But then you put it in a blender and then you've come out on the other side with this, this, I don't know. Am I am I like accurately describing? <laughs> no, for sure. I mean, well, it, it was interesting, you know, having these discussions with various different guitar players. You know, it's interesting to to find out who's influenced by what and so on and so forth. And for me, like early on, I, def I mean, I have a, a tendency to hyper focus on people, so uh, I do the deep dive. And um, and and early on, it was it was Hendrix and Cream or Clapton for me. Uh, and those, and the reason why I, th I thought no one can, even to this day, I mean, I listened to that early Cream stuff and in um, in the Blues Breakers record, and there was a way that Clapton, you know, phrased and his vibrato, and, and it just, I mean, I never get tired of it. I mean, I'll go to bed at night and I'll find a, a bootleg, you know, oh, someone's un <laughs> uploaded a Cream bootleg from 1968 in Toledo, and the audio quality is horrendous, but yet I can listen to it and, and hear, oh, here's another example of Clapton putting a array of what he did and being able to hear it and just go, I, I just never get tired of it. Same thing with Hendrix. I'm a total Hendrix fanatic, but at the same token, I'm like, well, where do they get this shit from? Mm -hmm. So then I start doing the deep dive on that. So I have a tendency over the years, I, my, my thought was, it's like, okay, you know, of that generation, people would say, would the kind of the, I mean, there are some people that refute it, but for the most part, you got Clapton and you got Hendrix. And then, of course, you got Jimmy Page and you got Jeff Beck. And, of course, Jeff Beck later on became like the grand, you know, the guy that kept on evolving and is like, you know, the grand master of that era of guitar playing that keeps on developing. But I thought, well, what would happen if you would take those elements of that highly emotive, visceral thing that is just undeniable and then you put it in the blender with all this other shit and then try to kick it down the field a little bit more? Mm -hmm. and, and so that's that's kind of... But I, but to your point, I still go back and listen to all of this old stuff. I mean, I, I feel like I'm kind of like my, my son said to me the other day, my, my youngest son who's 17, is like, how can you listen to another Zeppelin bootleg? How can you just, <laughs> it's like, I don't know, I, because the power of it, you know what I mean? It's just like, yeah. how did they mix it up in the blender this time? You know what I mean? So I, I think a lot of it is, is, is just kind of this um, weird fixation on certain aspects of stuff to kind of get the grout of it. And be able to, add, but always kind of going back there, trying to add different things in there, and trying to just kind of come up with my own little variations on stuff, but never trying to, never losing sight of that initial thing that, which is unfortunate to say, been locked since I've been, you know, a teenager. It's just bizarre. It's like I listen to a lot of the same things I listened to when I was twelve years old. I guess I'm kind of an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's. 
it feels more like it's like it's not a ritual, but there's like with religion, like people read the same text over and over again. Right. And there's always a meaning to be exp- like extracted from the same collection of words that you've read for a long period of time. And it's it's foundational. So I think there's something like that, like you're kind of checking back into this, like really sort of foundational things that like kind of compelled you. But this answer isn't super sufficient because you have harmony that is not found in that stuff. So are you pulling from jazz? Are you, you know, I know that bluegrass oftentimes ends up in territory that harmonically is similar to like a standard, you know, you're getting, you're getting diminished chords, you're getting, you know, dominant chords, and it's all being used in complex ways. But yeah, I feel like the Clapton and the Hendrix isn't doing that. So there's obviously some other stuff that is, that you're digging that, you know what I mean? Right. I definitely listened to, to jazz, but not, yeah, what was always interesting to me is I, I went to school for music. You know, my dad was a lawyer. Yeah, I'm the youngest of seven kids. So there was the expectation of being some kind of, you know, middle class professional of some sort. You know what I mean? It's like you you will go to school, you will get your degree, you'll do this, that, and the next thing. I'm like, hell no, I'm gonna be a rock pirate, and that's all there is to it. My dad's like, great, fantastic. So at every point along the way, he uh would talk to instructors of mine saying, you know, please, will you talk them out of this stuff? But I did, you know, they wanted me to go to school. And I and I wanted to, so I went to a University of Wisconsin, uh, Stevens Point, where a guitar player actually ran the jazz department. Uh, but it was always kind of an interesting thing for me because I wanted to know how to play over changes. But I did not necessarily, I didn't like jazz standards. And I think part of that was my own dysfunction of just experiencing, and again, this is my own weird prism of dysfunction, of that I was just so tired of the jazz snobbery, especially in relationship to the stuff that I loved, you know, yeah. having these jazz guys, you know, talk crap about Hendrix or Clapton or, you know, there was just this, uh, we're into superior music. And now granted, not everyone's like that, but the guys that I was exposed to along the way, for some reason, had that in. So I was kind of a reluctant, you know, uh, jazzer. There was stuff I really dug, usually the stuff that had more of a blues bent to it or more of the soul jazz stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I started getting into some of the fusion guys. I mean, for some reason, I loved Alan Holdsworth. You know, when I first heard, I had this buddy of mine who was a drummer and he would always be exposing me to different things. And and some of it I liked and some of it I didn't. Like, I didn't initially really get King Crimson. You know, he'd play me some of the 80s King Crimson records and I'm like... Uh, (laughs) Ah, but he played me Holdsworth. And to this day, that first IOU record, I mean, just the, the melody, once, once your ear gets acclimated to his sense of melody, it's like the most beautiful thing. So my thought was, well, how, how would it work if you would add some of that to more of like a bluesy, greasy environment, you know? Mm -hmm. And and in some ways it was answered by Scott Henderson, because to me, he kind of did that. You know what I mean? Uh, so dedicated jazz, I'm sorry, blues thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. I wouldn't have known you were a a Holdsworth guy. Oh yeah. Well, there's chords, chord wise. There's a lot of Holdsworth chords in there. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Hearing Holdsworth, I, it was too heavy for me. I think when I first heard it, like I, I was younger and I don't think I, I, I couldn't digest it. Right. And then over time, it became some of the most, like you said, some of the most beautiful playing and original approaches to harmony that, I, that I've ever heard. So, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. 
Yeah, the, the jazz elitism thing. Yeah, that's not <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, jazz is a funny part of, I think, knowing about harmony to any substantial degree, you're going to end up having to know about jazz. But then it's its own, it's a whole genre of music and it's a, its own culture. And there's a right. lot of don'ts when it comes to jazz. There's types of gear you're not supposed to use and you're not supposed to do certain things. And it's right. like this whole thing that's not very rock and roll at all. Right. And so, yeah, I became this sort of like thief where I'd be like stealing ideas but like not doing jazz but like realizing it's a repository of a lot of really great information when it comes to harmony and 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 just music in general right i I think schofield is is someone that for me really bridges you know the jazz the legit jazz knowledge with just getting the grease factor you know what i mean and and putting Mm -hmm. together groove oriented stuff that's great and but, you know, again, he's someone that's kind of a pariah to these jazz purists. And you hear people, oh, that's not, you know, and I just get so repelled by that. And again, this is my own my own dysfunction. And I've gotten to the point where I really, you know, I, I don't care. But to, to me, with the, with the jazz aspect of things, th- there are those who, you know, know all the standards. You know, I know a few standards, and most of them are the ones that... You know, because to me, you got to memorize them. If you don't memorize them, and, and you're reading them out of a real book, it, it it doesn't really. To me, it doesn't really have any air of authenticity to it. You know, that's worth listening to. But be that as it may, I so I have a few that I, I have learned that I just like playing because I like the tunes. Uh, but there are others that th- their whole kind of artistic bent is to add their um, advanced technique and advanced concept of harmony and how to reinterpret these standards, and that's their thing. They'll play the same tunes in an entirely different way. They know how to play them in every different key and, and, and can take them outside and do all this crazy stuff, and that's a beautiful thing. Um, but I was always of, I, I, like, let's create new music that's original that has these different elements in it and take it from there. And that's why I've never really, really delved into you know, kind of the, the main jazz realm. Cause I mean, there was, there was a time where I, I hated major seventh chords. You know what I mean? It's like, I hate major seventh. Like, I don't like this Care Bear shit. I don't want to, you know what I mean? Or, or when you would so hear funny. vocal jazz and person or, you know, interpretation of these songs, I call my sugar candy. I'm like, please, yeah. you know, <laughs> I can't take it. But by the same token, I have immense respect for people who have dedicated uh, their life to this pursuit of a highly sophisticated manipulation of harmony and, you know, these, the classic American songbook, absolutely have reverence for it. Um, but by the same token, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not better than. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, you just said something interesting about, like, the major seventh chord because uh, – um, do you feel because uh, I had a very similar like feeling about it sounded too happy and um, yes. and I was like I was at a I ended up going to music school I had been playing guitar for over a decade at this point but I, I ended up going to the Atlantic Institute of Music and there was a point where um, I was watching like an ensemble play it must have been Impressions it was like a Coltrane tune that was like a, a Dorian vibe right and I was like, I like this jazz. Like, right. <laughs> and it was it was darker. I was like, it doesn't sound all happy. And I had never. So do you feel like there's some weird bias in like rock 
in guitar playing that it's like biased towards like the minor tonalities of, of harmony. Like we're kind of like fixated on these, you know what I mean? It's almost as if look, it's interesting you should mention it because I remember one of the first times I actually spent a lot of time with, uh, with Robin Ford, uh, we were talking about influence and stuff we were into and, uh, and he said, Oh, you like that bad boy shit. He goes, I'm the same way. Meaning, you know, we're more stones than Beatles, <laughs> even though I love the Beatles, but you yeah. know what I mean? There, I think that there is a certain, uh, you know, the, the, the more gritty, um, you know, tonality, attitude, all that kind of stuff. I, I definitely think that's a thing without, without a doubt. And, yeah. and that's why, you know, playing major seventh chords isn't, I mean, I've mellowed with age. So now it's like, oh, I like major seventh chords now. You know what I mean? <laughs> After life is, you know, chewed me up and spat me out. I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. But, you know, back in the day, I was like, I ain't listening to that shit. I want to rock. Or I mean, you'd say, same thing like Kind of Blue. It's like the one jazz record you'd listen to. Be like, I totally get this. I love it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But then I'd be at jazz school and they would say, well, you know, try this on for size. And it would be something else where I'd be like, yeah, I'll give you an example. Like, uh, I didn't know about this tune until later on. And I don't know if you've ever jammed over this song, but I'm going to be the first one, not maybe the first one to say it, first time I'm going to say it. You know, when you hear the Herbie Hancock song, um, um, uh, what the hell's the song? Um, um, actual Proof, right? Uh -huh. I don't get that song at all. You know, people are like, oh, that's a great jazz. Let, let's play over this funk tune. And it's like, I don't hear those changes. They don't speak to me. At all. And it's almost as if it's one of those songs that says to uh, people, I know how to play jazz, and if you don't know how to play this, you're an idiot. It's kind of like, um, you know, like Giant Steps is another one. Can you play Giant Steps? No, I mean, I like Coltrane songs. I don't like Giant Steps. I've never felt the, com the uh, compelled to learn it just so I could shred over it and record it. You know what I mean? It, there, it's just one of those things. Yeah. There are certain things that get me, and then there's other things that don't. And there, there's almost there's a, there's a know-it-allism to some stuff that that repels me. Again, this is my own dysfunction, but those those are kind of some of the things. No, I, I really like this. I can tell you thought about this though, because like there's a type of like I know this is not like a popular opinion, but I actually feel this kind of strongly. It's because like you you thought about it. I actually agree with you about that tune, and I think there's two ways of navigating changes. There are chord progressions where like the next chord is asking for something right and, and right. how and the progression works in this way that like there's many ways to navigate it but you always like feel compelled to make a choice on the next chord then there's some chord progressions and some exercises with playing changes where you're literally supposed to make a progression that is like counterintuitive to the point where the only way you can navigate those changes is if you like intellectually know um what the next chord is not that you're right. melodically compelled or you're predicting it, but like you can read and it doesn't matter. It could be, it could be a total random collection of chords and you could still navigate those changes. But right. that isn't on the same level of, of like a chord progression that like there's a beauty to why the chords are together. You right. Know? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I've heard a lot of music where I'm like, mm, I hear you playing through these changes and I hear this progression, but why? Right. <laughs> 
Yeah, so I'll I'll leave it at that. <laughs> and it's not it's not like it's better than or worse than. It's just that I don't. It, it's it's almost as you know, as I said. There's almost like a uh, uh, a bar that's set where you've got to you know here are the tunes you need to play if you're going to be considered legit as a um, whatever kind of jazz fusion or whatever type of guitarist and. I just don't prescribe to any of it. I mean, there's there's stuff that I really dig, um, and most of the stuff that I really dig, there, there's always this kind of greasier aspect to it. You know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. there's always a little bit of that. Yeah, you know, like Mike Stern is a guy I love to this day. You know what I mean? I, but he's got that bluesy thing going on. I mean, there there was a long time where you know people would talk about you know Pat Metheny, and I'd be like, you know, my younger self didn't get it. Because it was too pastel. I remember saying, this is too pastel for me. You know what I mean? And now I listen to it and I, it's beautiful and I love it and I'm in it, you know, and, and now I'm kind of rediscovered. That's kind of, kind of my path has been, I get viscerally attached to a certain perspective of things and, and stuff is added to the stew and then other kind of logical things that should be involved that have turned me off for some reason. And mm-hmm. it isn't until much later where all of a sudden I'll be exposed to it in a different way and then I'm all in. And Pat Metheny was one of those guys. So that that kind of happens to me as, as well. I don't know if that works the same way for you. Yeah, no, it absolutely does. Um, and it's, it's kind of cool to maybe not vibe with something at one point in your playing and then get to another point. And you're like, Oh wait, I see a value here that I didn't see before. Um, right. Yeah. I think that's cool. Like you have the same ears going into the same brain, but obviously something has changed over time, but it's also the same ears in the same brain. Right. Um, yeah. I think, I think it's cool because it creates a loop with music. Like you're not always necessarily waiting for new musical ideas you can discover old musical ideas and sometimes you're rediscovering stuff. And sometimes that stuff is now has a value because of where music is today. You're, you're, you're realizing something amazing about it only in contrast to say, you know, what everyone's doing on the guitar today versus 50 years ago. Um, so yeah, I think it's cool. However, you know, I know I'm actually, I've been listening to less music lately. And I, as I'm listening to you, I'm realizing like you listen to music a lot. Like you're, you describe going to bed and putting stuff on. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Ah, so you, do you ever hit these lulls where like, you just feel like you'd rather put on a podcast or like not even listening to anything when you're driving versus times where you're playing your favorite record. Do you go into these periods where you kind of don't really want to listen to music that much? Well, I, I do have, you know, other interests and stuff there. I'll listen to different podcasts or, uh, uh, I'm big into history and big into politics, which of course we won't discuss, but (laughs) (laughs) as far as taking, taking the deep dive, uh, and, um, so there, there are stuff that, that I'll, I'll listen to in that regard, but I, you know, what, what's been interesting for me is, is that, um, I YouTube has just kind of opened everything up for me in a way where it's before like the advent of YouTube. And then of course now these streaming services of which I only recently got one. I I finally got the um, uh, iTunes subscription where I can listen to whatever I want. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when I was younger, it was just kind of in and ingrained in my mind that um, you, you had to make a financial commitment to get into various different 
people to listen to because either you'd hear it on the radio or you would have to go out and buy the records or borrow them from somebody or steal them from some. <laughs> no, but you get the idea. So nowadays there's, it's, it's kind of when you, when you get your mind around the fact I've always made kind of like mental side, po- uh, uh, signposts in my mind of one of these days I'm going to get into so-and-so, but I just don't really feel like making the commitment of buying the records right now. Cause what if I buy the wrong one? You know what I mean? Right. And so now all the stuff is just available. So, you know, it's like any tangential, thing like oh remember that one cat i wanted to check out i think i'll get into that now and then as soon as you listen to something like now what's the story behind this bird then you go on wikipedia and you're like well how much is this then you go to their website and then you feel and then there's a uh click to somebody else so there's like endless stuff there's an endless rabbit hole that's why i just i I just can't you know when people say they get bored i'm like how is that even possible (laughs) yeah no that's um that's really funny like what you mentioned about the financial commitment to getting into it because i'm right on the cusp of like i remember tower records and like you know you may love music but how much money do you have right (laughs) and it used to be part of you know and now and i i've always been fascinated with the change over time with how we consume music because it used to be what you're describing like physical collections you could look at a CD book and you're like, that's a couple thousand dollars, right? Like, right. These, you know, and it was a part of your decision making. And then, you know, the streaming thing and the idea that you even own music. Like, I remember people had collections, like you had a record collection, you had a CD collection. It was like, it was like showing it to me, it reminds me of like what pedals are on your pedal board or what guitars are in your collect. Like, it's right. a smattering of choices that kind of compile a, a, an identity. And it's like, oh, dude, you've got this record and you've got this record. And there was a sense of like ownership to a finite collection of music that was on a physical medium. And I remember talking to a friend of mine who was in like the like tech sphere. And this was this was before the streaming services. And it was all about like memory on your phone and how much of your library you could keep on your phone or whatever. And he was like, dude, you're just going to pull that stuff out of a cloud one day. No one's going to own the music. And I was like, that's the weird, like, that's weird. What are you talking about? But like, you know, I think there are generations now who are like the idea of music ownership is strange. Right. Cause you don't own something that isn't physical. And, um, this sort of finite collection, I don't know. I think, you and I both are traversing this sort of sea change that like the way we relate to our music and what medium it comes with is actually changing a lot of things. Like, you know, the fact that you don't have to pay for it and it's infinitely available, that's like totally impacting people's musical tastes and what they're exposed to. And it's really cool. I I don't know. I feel like it's actually double-edged too, because there's relationships I had to single bodies of work that I think, it's harder to have now because right. maybe you hear it on a Spotify playlist and you just hear track seven and you don't really connect with the artwork and the right the, the whole album as a listening experience. Like I kind of lament the loss of, of that, but there's this other thing happening that is kind of interesting to watch in real time. Absolutely. Know? And I, I think I think the Instagram thing, like we were talking about Mateus at the very beginning of this. Right. I have felt a weird way about like I'll put something on Instagram that I think I'm going to put into a song and like in a weird way, like once I put it on Instagram and I get some reactions to it, maybe people dig it. I'm like, 
I almost have less drive to put it into a song because it's almost as if I just like basically got the fix of releasing it. Right, 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 right. And it started to create this question of like, what's it all for? Like, I don't know how to explain it. It's like, what's it all for? Like, because I, I feel like, you know, the sentiment he's expressing with the Instagram and the internet and how it's maybe negatively impacting a guitar playing it, it, I, I kind of resonate with what he's saying without maybe, maybe I don't know exactly what he's, he's feeling, but there's a weird disruption with it just essentially all taking place on the internet. That is like kind of messing with my brain a little bit, you know? Absolutely. Well, it's, it's, it's a bizarre thing uh, without question, but you know, there, one of the things I wanted to tie in before we, before we run out of time, I'd, I'd like to, to talk about a couple different things um, in regard to, you know, you have your own guitars now and, and just your approach, I mean, you've got these, these different techniques you've brought to the table that you found needed a, a, a bigger template. So more strings, fan frets, you know, a different construction of the actual instrument itself. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about that and that process. Um, and then I also wanted to also touch base in kind of a, a separate thing of, how much of the of the music? I mean, I've, I've noticed with your stuff is is that you've got these different riffs coming in and out. You've got these different you know rhythmic things coming in and out, and then but there is a jam aspect. All of a sudden, they're like this part this part shredding and this part is you know how much of that is thoroughly improvised and do you um, kind of map things out of their little signposts on those different things that you'll always do or you're like you know fuck it when it's time for me to improvise it's never the same so. Mm-hmm. Tackle that whole thing as you will. Okay. Well, I'll start with the improvised versus, I guess, composed thing. Um, I'm not the strongest improviser. It's like the thing that I kind of started thinking about most recently as opposed to like, so I fixated on technique and, and theory, but because I wasn't playing improvisational music, I wasn't jamming with people per se. I was learning crazy stuff or writing stuff where I could be like, oh, I'm going to use sweep picking to navigate these types of chords. But it was like a composed thing. It may sound like a lead or it might sound like a solo, but it's actually composed. Okay. And so when you're listening to Animals as Leaders, like you're mainly hearing composed solos. But I would say like from our last album onward, I started um, creating um, moments in the song where I could improvise more comfortably because some of the older compositions, there isn't a ton of repeats and it's, it's like kind of rhythmically complex. These things disrupt your ability to just kind of like sure rip a mean solo. Cause you're thinking about all this stuff, you know? Right. So yeah, we have evolved over time to allow for more breathing room to develop something. So I think I will probably still compose solos cause I'm just not, one of these guys you could just hit record and it's like well what tape do you want because they're all amazing i kind of have to like whittle it down you know to okay here's the solo got it um but live oftentimes i'll just improvise stuff and then um with the guitars yeah i started uh liking bands who were using drop tunings this is kind of when like new metal was like coming up so you had your your deftones and your you know, it became fashionable. I think people realize that lower frequencies are like girthier and heavier. Right. Sure. Yeah, you know, and so um, 
it was an interesting combination of liking like metal that had lower tunings and also learning um, about guys like Victor Wooten who were doing a, a lot of great like uh, two-handed techniques um, but on like a bass, you know, so this percussive stuff and some tapping stuff. So the extended range thing was me liking Charlie Hunter and, right. and Vic Wooten and, you know, even guys like George, George Van Epps um, has a bunch of, you know, chord melodies of jazz standards, but he would play this uh, seven string guitar and drop A. And it allowed him to get like, you know, horn keys like E flat and stuff like that. But it also allowed you to voice extensions on chords because you have this extra low string. So now the F sharp that used to be down here is like here. And the intervals in that position are a lot higher than the intervals that exist at the second fret on your, you know. So anyway, the extended range thing was basically me wanting to participate in some of this. Um, I like the heaviness, but I also like the the ability to voice chords and do tapping and have this wide range of, of, of uh, intervals. So, you know, designing my own guitar was basically, I had had some custom um, custom guitars made that were extended range and they were all pretty, this is where I started to see stuff like fan frets and more ergonomic body shapes, mm -hmm. um, even headless guitars, like experimental stuff. And, you know, I was an Ibanez guy, but, you know, my side chick was these, you know, weird custom guitars that I had with all these extra strings. Sure. And so I was like, all right, let me take what I like about these custom guitars I had made and like poach what I think are the most, you know, the best parts of them, shove them into something that is original. And that's kind of what the, the Abasi Lorada is. Um, I'll pull this down for you if we, end up doing video with this stuff but um cool thanks man yeah i like uh to me it's almost like a like a weird mutated les paul thing because it's like a single cut and it yeah. you know like um but it, it has some obvious like differences like this cutaway here allows for you know i don't know if when you're soloing you ever need to position your guitar in a different way maybe you'll use your your thigh or something like that to kind of move the guitar. And, yeah. yeah. You know, I think it's a matter of how low the strap is, but yes, yeah, you know, but this allows for certain seating positions. I think it just encourages like, you know, um, the guitar to kind of sit in your lap or against you in certain ways. I always like the, like I said, I was an Ibanez guy. So I like the thin, um, thin body stuff. I just felt like it, it was reminding me of like how a sports car is like there's a type of like, let's make it as light as possible and aerodynamic and it, they, it looks fast, you know, and it's like sure. kind of this whole thing. So aesthetically, I wanted something that communicated the same things like a purpose built, like precision, futuristic sort, sort of instrument. Right. Um, yeah. So that's where the aesthetics really come from. And then uh, most importantly, when you start adding lower range to a guitar um like if you took the les paul behind you and you wanted to drop your e string an octave like for obvious reasons that's not going to work out that great right <laughs> so uh scale length wise it helps to just um have a longer neck for lower notes so this whole fan fret thing is attempting to basically combine multiple scale lengths on the same neck got it right so when you when you bend on these upper strings, you're you're working within the same scale length that you'd get on something like 
a Strat or like a, a traditional six-string guitar, 25 and a half inches. So your muscle memory for intonation and the string tension feels pretty close to what you're used to. And then when you get lower, it gets to like baritone range, like 27 plus inches, which, you know, that just like allows things to sound focused and in tune and the string tension feels feels right. But um, not all of the designs are super futuristic. We actually have this crap. Uh, this one has your pickups in it, actually. Yeah. Um, so the the body shape just like reminds me of a telly in some way. So we kind of were like, dude, we should just do like a a T version of the guitar. Sure. And um, this one is more traditional. It's not multi scale. It's kind of like I haven't tried your Reverend, but I don't know if you go for. There's certain modern guitars that are like informed by classic guitars, but the the radius is flatter, or the you know it's like right. This is kind of doing that thing where it's it's a little more shreddy than like a you know fifty something you know Telecaster. Sure. Um, but it, it's kind of meant to get similar results, you know. Right. So, and I I love I love your your uh, fluent set because they remind me of that same exact thing. Like it gets those tones. There's just a little bit little bit extra on there, you right. know. They're a little not extra something. something. A little bit of something, something. They're really great. Like I love like the underwound like voicing, and then you know, it was just the obvious choice for I think an instrument that's forward thinking, but still, pay, like loves. There's nothing like how do I describe this? The guitar ain't broke. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> like, and so it wasn't like trying to re you know design the wheel, but it was like, well, what? Where can we like kind of tidy things up a little bit? And like the fact that they're noiseless and versatile, you like your tone knob, like right. you know, you've got a usable range. It almost sounds like a wall. Like I remember seeing you do some demos, and I'm like, that's crazy sounding. Like a full vocal, like a like a vowel like enunciation on the the tone knob. You know. Yeah, we definitely wanted that because you know old you know Roy Buchanan used to do that and Danny Gatton and all. And I was like, I gotta if we're doing a telly set, we gotta have that vocal quality to that tone control. So mm -hmm. I'm glad that that all worked out. Yeah, like watching your demos of the fluent stuff, I was like, yeah, this works. <laughs> like this stuff is good. <laughs> so we we put uh, the Greg Cox set in all of these that we sell. But um, yeah, I really like this one just because it it's kind of retro future vibes. Right on. Yeah, it's really cool. I dig it. Thanks. So that's that's essentially the uh, Abasi concept stuff. Well, what's interesting and what kind of led me to that. That questions when you were talking about the, the the Instagram stuff is that you know as as musicians in this day and age as we talked about earlier the whole way of consuming music is different so you know the idea of people buying it you know do they really own it so not that people haven't used uh, as artists you know especially more instrumental oriented artists where especially guitar oriented things. Uh, where we've had signature products in, in the past. Certainly that goes back ad infinitum. But uh, really nowadays, it's it's these different social media things, as far as I'm concerned. What, what makes it fun to do just for the heck of it is that underneath this thing of just kind of randomly showing uh, a kind of a fun thing is this instrument that you've helped put together, which you're really into, and it's fun for you to do. 
Uh, but at the same token, in that video, people are like, well, what is he using while well, he's using that thing? And so it, it's not like you're hard selling something, but you're just kind of doing all the different things that you love to do. And you've been a part of these different things to make music better. But as a result of being visible on all these different formats, it all kind of works into this multifaceted way of just being able to eat. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> That's kind of the way I look at it. So it's like, you know, yeah, well, I, you know, I, if I wouldn't post on Instagram anymore, would it be the end of the world? No, but it's, it's fun for me to do. And then I'm, and then there's a separate culture on YouTube, which I've been late to the party on. Cause I've, you know, I've, I've all my YouTube stuff is on other people's channels. And so lately I've been posting more stuff on mine, but it's all, it's a different culture, different culture on Facebook, different culture on Twitter. But to me, it all kind of works as you just kind of do random fun things for all that stuff. And then all of these, you know, all of a sudden, like if you do a video and you're using you're a bossy concepts guitar and people are like, man, that sounds good. And, but you're not in the video going, Hey, buy this. You're just having fun playing. But as a part of the good vibes being, uh, spread through these different formats, it is affecting your livelihood. You know what I mean? But not in a like overt, like sleazy buy this. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, you nailed it. And I think you're actually, you're kind of a good case study in this because I feel like, I feel like I'm connecting with the fact that you just like playing. Right. You like playing. You're excited about guitar. I noticed you'll play your own signature guitar, but sometimes you'll just play a, a strat that you have. You're like, well, today I'm playing this guitar. And it's this balance of, it, it just seems authentic. And I think there is like a, a healthy part of the guitar culture that is like um, just celebrating the fact that we all love playing. And there's so much like fun to be had and there's so much expression and yes that does relate to you know if i hear you playing and i like what i hear then i'm gonna be like all right what fuzz pedal is that that sounds gnarly like just want to know and right. it does kind of circle back and it in it i think you know you kind of laid out like i think the healthy version of how social media and being a musician can work together to you know keep you fed where it's like you authentically love playing. There's tools for the job and there's these ways in which people can see what you're doing. And there's this sort of like, there's a culture and there's like, I feel like there's a healthy version of that, that is definitely like benefiting a lot of people. Um, I think, you know, the downside is maybe getting too focused on it and, and not having a bit of arms distance and treating it like fun. But yeah, I like that Instagram exists. I can see what, freaking Joe Bonamassa feels like playing today. Like, right. <laughs> which, is, which is always something mind-blowing. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and it's like, this is cool. And it's like, you just sit up. I can see Eric Johnson just sit a phone down on a table and be like, hey, guys, I've been thinking about these types of like, and I'm like, this is awesome. It is. <laughs> it is absolutely awesome. And that's that's one of the things I like to say is that, you know, in, in this day and age, there's really no reason to suck, if we're honest. You know, it's like you yeah. have access. I mean, you still got to put the time in, obviously. But certainly, you know, the mystery of slaving over a record, you know, and, and like, you know, without even the ability to slow it down is and going back and forth and listening to stuff. And now you can just see a variety. You can see a hamster playing Hendrix. You know what I mean? It's like it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's crazy. But, you know, I, I wonder if you actually have thought about the fact that maybe there's a double-edged sword to that, too, where, like, there's so much information that if you're a young, if you're 
a new guitar student, you might get overwhelmed. And for some reason, you're in the corners of some obscure Hungarian minor scale, and you you haven't even figured out the difference between a dominant chord and a major chord and its function in a key. But now you're looking at like, you know, Messian modes. Right. (laughs) It's like, I think, and I don't know if you feel this way, but the growing up without the internet and being forced to get on, you know, have a single record with a single solo on that single song and being like, all right, how does this solo go? And just laboring over that one thing. And there are hyperloops and Wikipedia links to various other, you're just like doing this thing the hard way. Right. Do you feel that like, I don't know, part part of me is wondering if there's a benefit to that versus the fact that all human information is literally available to you in like one second, that I feel like that can actually be overwhelming in some ways. So it's kind of like, I almost feel fortunate that I got a lot of my learning in before the Pandora's box of the internet opened up, you know? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's an excellent point. I mean, I would imagine, I mean, I wouldn't want to do it all over again. Let's put it that way. Um, But yeah, it's, for me, it's, it's great. Because, you know, again, as we talked about, it's so it's so wild having access to all this stuff that used to be such a a labor to do before. But nowadays, uh, to your point, I mean, you it might it, it might seem overwhelming. I, I guess, you know, the, the thing that that I think when I talk to various different folks that are taking a Skype lesson or something, it's like, you know, this the the idea of. I think one of the guitar players' downfalls is, or probably humans in general, but musicians, guitar players, is that we think that at some point down the line, we're going to be good. You know what I mean? There's never any moment of, hey, I can have fun making music with whatever tools that I have right now, mm-hmm. and I can make valid, a valid expression of even if I know three chords and one scale. But there's always this pressure of, oh, no, on down the line, it's going to be better. Or, you know, you, you're always going for a place that you never arrive at where there, there, there seemed to be a, at one point where I'm just like, fuck it. I'm okay with where I'm at. I'm always going to try to get better, but there needs to be, um, just kind of an enjoyment of the moment as opposed to being inundated by the impossibility of what might never come. You know what I mean? I mean, that sounds a little airy fairy, but I think you understand what I'm saying. No, I love that. Cause, uh, I've had conversations with myself, fairly recently about that where like i feel like a perpetual student i want to get better but i'm like tosin you probably play well enough like getting faster or any of this shit is not going to make your music more compelling like you probably could utilize what you have now to make a musical statement and it's not dependent on you learning more stuff like it's probably so i think you, you bring up a really good point like especially like because there's this weird sort of, I don't want to say competitive nature about playing guitar, but there there is a type of like um, performance-based aspect to playing the guitar, depending on the type of music you play. Like if we were all writing like cowboy chord sort of folk music, like you probably could, a year and a half into playing guitar, you're good. You have all the skills right. you need to make all music, but we're not talking about that. So it gets more complex, but I think you're right. There should be, an emphasis on like the strength of your musical ideas in the moment and that being valid, you can overwhelm yourself by the awareness that there are these 
genius level players who are doing things that are beyond you, but that's not necessarily the point of why you're making music. Right. And exactly. Yeah. You kind of have to have a healthy relationship with like the present you and the hypothetical future you and like not get enrolled in this idea that like, you're not, you're not doing it now. Like you're not saying something musical about musically valid now, but maybe if you learn some more scales and modes and stuff, you will be saying it. It's kind of like, I bet with your teaching, you probably, you kind of have to do some counseling like this. You have to be like, listen. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's, and that's the whole thing. We you know people talk about, you know, a lot of times people will talk about improvising, you know, and, you know, I, I, I play the same three, you know, after 24 bars of a blues solo, I've played everything I know. And I said, well, that's not the point of, of doing it. It's, it's the point of you want to just, whatever you're about to play is influenced by what you just played. And it could be random sound. You just kind of go, you build a conversation. And I always bring it back to, you know, uh, using the analogy of, of, of a conversation and vocabulary words, you know, <laughs> I always bring it back to the point is that you want, I mean, you don't stop talking because you've said the same words over and over again. You have different meaning every time you want to be able to communicate. Sometimes I'm, I'm interested in, you know, learning new words every now and again, but there's always a gestation period before, you know, you learn a new word. And like, now I remember hearing the word recalcitrant. I was like, well, that's a good word. I think I'll, you know, but if you, if we just drop it in conversation where it doesn't make any sense, it's, it's stupid. It's the same <laughs> thing with a new lick. You know, it's like you're playing some kind of thing. Also, I'm just going to do that in there because, you know, uh, I just learned it. And, and, and there is that aspect of things where you're kind of sussing things out. But mm -hmm. um, I always just kind of just go back to the point of, you know, and I mentioned about creamier Clapton you know I know every lick he's going to play that doesn't mean to say that I don't love the way he says it every time you know what mm -hmm. I mean mm -hmm. so it's uh it's an interesting thing without without a doubt mm -hmm. yeah I, yeah the analogies to language are super apt for sure and I don't know so with improvising did you I feel like I always try to figure out what people are thinking about when they improvise. And there always is that balance between licks and concepts and just literally streaming. And are you at a point where you're not bogged down by any of this mental BS and you kind of like, you can get on there and you're satisfied with what happens when you're, when you're doing chorus after chorus, does it feel like you're in that place? Well, to give you an example, we just, we just recorded on uh, Toby came down and we do our live stream. You know, the organ player comes down and of course Dylan lives with me. So, but Toby comes down every other week and we do our live stream, but we decided we'd go in the studio and record some stuff. Uh, even though we got a record in the can that we're going to try to get out in the next couple of months, we thought we'd start working on another one. And um, we go through sometimes when I'm recording something, um, I'd, I'd prefer to do everything live. And one of the reasons why I like doing that is because the solo you do in the moment, I'm very much of the mindset of that's the way it was supposed to have happened. You know what I mean? Like, for instance, I go in and the speaker cabinet for my caulk amp wasn't there. I forgot to bring it. I thought I forgot that I took it out of the studio. So we just had the head and then we plugged it into a Marshall bottom. It didn't sound right. So I just ended up using... Uh, uh, a Fender Hot Rod DeVille in the clean channel. I use my Gristle King for a lead thing. And I don't usually use compressors, but I put one on and it's, it sounded cool. Mm. And um, so I'm very much, however it happened in the moment was the way it was supposed to be. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, if we record something and there's like um, the whole solo is great except for one little thing, I might go, well, just punch me in there and I'll just fix that little thing. But a lot of times I'll just say, it's would just leave it. And that took me a long time to get to that place. Cause usually you're like, Oh, so-and-so is going to hear it and they're not going to, and they're going to say well, that was rushed or the, you know what I mean? You start playing these games yeah. and, and I finally got to the point. I was like, I don't give a sweet shit. If the vibe is good and it it overwhelmingly uh, has a good energy to it and a mode of quality, I leave it. But it, it took me a long time to, to, to get to that. Um, and I, I try, I, I have faith in the moment thing. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, unless something's a complete train wreck, you know what I mean? Yeah. But even that, I mean, because I, I, it, it's so weird as I listen to a lot of older stuff mm-hmm. that I thought was just perfection incarnate when I was a kid. And now I hear everything where it's like, well, that's a little out of tune there. Or, you know, like, I, for instance, I was listening to Hey Joe today, right? I was on, you know, I, I read this, uh, another Hendrix book. Um, and, and the weird thing is I never had, are you experienced when I was a kid, I had smash hits and I had access bold as love, but there were some tunes that were on Are you experienced that didn't make it on smashes, but I never had that record. So every now and again, I'll listen to, are you experienced as a running order? And, uh, anyway, so, Hey Joe comes on and I'm listening to it. And he does these little chucks out with that match with the snare, you know, so, ding, 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 and he's doing it and they're off. And I'm like, I've listened to this thing a thousand times over the years, and it's never bothered me. If that was my record, that would bother the shit out of me. Mm-hmm. And I'm, it's just so – or like on, you listen to Zeppelin on um, uh, the first Zeppelin record when they're doing I Can't Quit You, Baby. And he's soloing, and he goes to the – early. He does – and then they go – it's obviously a mistake, but he said, fuck it, I'm leaving it in. And, and that to me – has has weight you know what i mean that these guys said no the overall aspect of this stuff was was cool and we're going to leave that the way it is and somehow over the years that you could fix it you know what i mean or things got so uh control based that everything had to be you know overdone and so it's i've gotten far um far less preoccupied with um being self-conscious about leaving stuff in that wouldn't be necessarily uh an immaculate performance i think that's i think that's the way to do it um yeah because i think the human quality to to a lot of things is being scrubbed out by perfection i mean it's like the photoshop you know there's there's human beauty and then there's this ideal and now there are tools to create an ideal right and they're doing a thing where like now it's like yeah it's 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 not quite the same as as natural beauty when everything's hyper edited to look like a certain way and i think i think modern recording tools allow you to to create to manufacture perfect you know right. executions of things and i like hearing the human I like hearing the human, whether it's in feel, you know, this, everyone has a different internal clock and, you know, but now we're, you know, recording to a click and then quantizing things and then editing, like it's, we're cleansing a lot of the human character out of, uh, out of a lot of things. So I don't know, especially with my genre, it's getting gnarly, Greg, like people are, I mean, it's like, you can have things perfectly on the grid if you want them to as, as far as say the drums are sure. concerned or whatever and even with the tones like editing the space in between your palm mutes out so where it's complete silence and it's not the same thing as choking it like naturally there's a lot of fuckery 
Um, <laughs> but nah, I love what you described, that headspace of, it's almost like confidence and acceptance and knowing what the true value of what you're doing is. It's not necessarily imperfection. And imperfection can contribute to something that seems more authentic on as a whole because right. you left in that weird thing or whatever. So yeah, I think you're, you're at a point, I think where this is, I think this is stuff that you can only learn by like literally spending your life concerned about it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then you do have to enter the space of acceptance and just kind of like things are as they should be. There's kind of like this, like, which is cool that you teach. Cause I feel like, this stuff is a lot different than Googling like what scale to play over an alter dominant chord. You, know <laughs> you can't glean this stuff. You know what I mean? So yeah, it's cool. Can you dig it? Can dig it. Well, listen, we've, we, I'm sure we could talk for another couple hours, but we should probably wrap it up. Um, is there anything you would like to say you got coming up that you'd like people to check out or any of that kind of stuff? I think this will probably be aired in, I don't know, a couple, three, four weeks, maybe. I think it'll probably go up. Isn't that right, Paul Brown? I think you said yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, no, uh, if you're in the market for a guitar, Abasi Concepts is um, is a thing. So yes. you know, check that stuff out. And then um, Animals as Leaders is my band, and we are working on a record. And those there are songs that will be you know coming out throughout the year, in the next few months, I would say. So we haven't put out a record in a few years. So um, I think that could be fun for people who are waiting. Awesome. And yeah, that is it. Well, I'll tell you what, I know that uh, pre-COVID, there was some talk about you and I doing some Fishman things together, and that would be a blast. I'd love to do it. It would be fun to see what kind of mischief we could get up to. Yeah, I mean, I've actually, I've actually, like, just started really digging the blues in a way that, like, I want to incorporate into my playing. And I think um, it's a step in your direction, and I think you are sufficiently creative that you could we could sit down together and even my wackiness and your wackiness, there'll be some, some overlap. So oh, I think without a doubt, it would be awesome. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. And that if we are playing together, that means that the world is returned to some degree of normal. And yes. that's also exciting too. So. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, man. Well, listen, my friend, thank you so much for taking the time. It was an absolute delight uh, speaking with you today. And uh, I hope to see you sooner than later in person. Yeah, Greg. Meanwhile, see you on the internet. That's correct, Amundo. All right, my friend. Have a good one. Thanks again. You too. I will see you later. Thank you so much, folks, for tuning in. Special thank you to Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and the Mighty Fishman Transducers for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed yourself, ladies and gentlemen, please subscribe and review so that people can get the word out that this is worth experiencing. Can you dig it? Thanks again. We'll see you soon. Or you'll hear me soon. <laughs>